Welcome to Transformative Principle. I'm your host, Jethro Jones, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. This episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational, a professional development publisher serving as the global leader in combining both research and practice in all materials. Find timely PD publications to support yourself and your faculty by visiting them online at us.johncatbookshop.com. Great instruction gets students engaged. TeachFX equips teachers with the instructional strategies and job-embedded feedback they need to get students engaged in virtual or in-person classes. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com slash principle. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am very excited to have on the program today, Joellen Killian. She is a senior advisor to Learning Forward and has served for many years as the association's deputy executive director. As the senior advisor, she leads initiatives related to the link between professional development and student learning, and she led the most recent revision of the standards for professional learning and has extensive experience in planning, design, implementation and evaluation of professional learning at the school system and state and provincial levels. She works with coaches, principals, district, and state leaders to support understanding and embedding standards-based professional learning in a system. And she is the author or or co-author of numerous books, including The Feedback Process, Coaching Matters, Assessing Impact, Evaluating Staff Development, Taking the Lead, New Roles for Teachers and School-Based Coaches, and Becoming a Learning School, and many more. Joellen, welcome, and thank you so much for being part of Transformative Principle. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm honored to be with you. Well, I'm honored to have you, and whenever I get to speak to someone who's been doing this as long as you have, I am just humbled with your experience and the different things that you've done, and and so I'd like to talk uh, first and foremost about the situation that we're in with coronavirus Some schools are in-person, some are hybrid, some are fully remote, and nobody really knows how to do this kind of thing that we've been doing. And so I want to talk to you about the role of coaching in this situation and how principals and coaches, instructional coaches specifically, can help their teachers get better at what they're doing in this environment where everybody is stressed to the max. So let's just start there and and dive into that topic. What are your thoughts on coaching in this crazy time? Coaches and principals probably have one of the most challenging responsibilities related to the education of students today. Given the constant change that we're experiencing, I think the primary focus for principals and coaches is helping people stay positive, helping people realize that in the midst of dramatic change, we as educators have found some rather remarkable talents and skills. We've been able to turn on a dime when this industry is often accused of being one that's slow to change 
we have seen educators rise to the top and make some pretty remarkable transformations almost overnight. And coaches and principals are leaders in that work. They're leading both with their can-do attitude. They're leading by learning voraciously so they can lead the learning of others. And they're leading also by helping people take care of themselves and remembering how important it is to balance academics with self-care. Like everybody that I've talked to over the last eight months has been talking about how important it is to pay attention to that self-care. But I want to talk about that idea of helping people stay positive, which I agree is a primary responsibility. And it's difficult to stay positive when things are changing all the time. We don't know what's going on when, you know, the media is saying that our area is exploding and we're having a surge. All those things can be really challenging. How do we stay positive without being Pollyanna-ish and saying everything's fine? Because there's a difference between being positive and being Pollyanna. Can you help us understand that better? Well, from somebody who is a horrible Pollyanna, it is a little difficult for me to distinguish those two. However, I will say that being positive is first and foremost about being truthful not trying to hide feelings, hide distress, cover it up, pretend that it doesn't exist. I think honesty, integrity, telling the truth, acknowledging pain is one of the most positive things we can do. And so as I work with coaches who are facing clients, teachers who are suffering emotionally, They suffer emotionally because of the changes that you mentioned and coping with their own families. Acknowledging their emotional distress is one of the most positive things we can do and allow people to feel that distress rather than to pretend as if it isn't appropriate for an educator to be feeling distress or to wallow in misery. That's just completely inappropriate. Being positive is being honest. Well, I really like that that way you turn that phrase on, on its head in my mind, which is acknowledging emotional distress is one of the most positive things we can do. I, I love that approach because it recognizes that being positive doesn't mean saying that everything's perfect or being Pollyanna about things. It acknowledges that there is truth and you can still be positive even when we're experiencing these trials and challenges, and it's not the end of the world that we're experiencing them, even though it may feel like it to us. So I really appreciate that. I think that's really valuable. As we're talking about helping teachers get better during this time, every teacher feels like they're a first-year teacher. Every coach feels like they're a first-year coach, and every principal feels like they're a first-year principal. And so long in education, we've had this focus on in order to be a good coach or a good principal, you have to have been in the classroom. And right now there is no principal or coach out there who has been in this virtual or hybrid classroom that we're asking our teachers to be in. And so I think we need to disabuse ourselves of that notion that you have to have experienced it to, to be successful at coaching someone. So how do we coach people now in this time 
when we can't say, when I was in the classroom, I did this and it works, which is, by the way, one of the worst things you can say to a teacher. <laughs> Nobody likes hearing that. So that's not a good way to do it anyway, but we've assumed that that's what was important. How do we coach people in this time? Well, I think what you're speaking to really addresses the, the question of what do we mean by a coach? So in, in one paradigm that you were talking about, you were talking about a coach as an expert, a coach who has all the answers, a coach who has guidance and can advise and direct. And to me, that is not a coach. That is a consultant. We talk about those three C's in coaching, the consultant, the collaborator, or the coach. That's someone who serves as an advisor to help solve someone else's problems. A good coach is someone who helps a person define the problem, seek possibilities that are appropriate for that particular person, and guides that person in decision-making by helping the person sort out what are the advantages and disadvantages of each of the options available for the situation that particular person is facing. And it is a process of not getting it right. It's often a process of formulating a hypothesis. If I'm facing, uh, just for example, students now in my area, we're hearing lots of news stories of parents really upset by students' low grades. And a part of that is non-participation, students having difficulty accessing um, their coursework, their tests, their assignments electronically, all of those challenges. It's not jumping in and telling someone how to solve that problem. It's sitting with someone and really working on trying to get the, to the root, trying to figure out what might be the causes in order to be able to focus attention on finding appropriate solutions that match the case, the situation, the circumstance. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. This is all about adaptive challenges that we're facing every day. Yeah. And when you think about it in that light of, of changing how it, the person's a consultant versus a coach versus a collaborator, that, that makes your job easier in that you're not trying to be the expert. And too often when we think of feedback, we think of an expert giving someone who's not an expert commentary on how they could be more like an expert. And I've talked with many people on this program who have said that's not a good approach, but that's our default way to do it. And so, so how do we help them form that hypothesis and ask the right questions to get people to a place where they can be successful in and feel successful in what they're doing? I think the biggest challenge in helping people get to that point is to engage them in searching for and defining their own identity. So if I, as a coach, believe that my best means of supporting someone is by 
guiding the person to follow my advice or listen to my feedback, implement my feedback, then there is very little that I can do to shift that practice. I'm going to continue to give advice. I'm going to continue to expect people to follow my advice. And the more I do that, the less likely people are to want to. So I think knowing who I am as a coach, knowing that my primary mission as a coach is to lead my clients, whether they're teachers or colleagues or principals, to discover their own best approach, their own best solution, their own approach to handling whatever the situation is. If I can do that, that literally is divesting me of the responsibility of fixing somebody else's situation and really owning my job as that person who can facilitate and mediate your thinking, the thinking of someone else. And I I can empower another person by doing that. I can build self-efficacy by doing that. I can help someone reach that status of being self-actualized. When I take my own expertise away and allow someone else to build his or her own. So it starts with me. And if I can critically distinguish who I am as a coach and really own coaching as my identity, then it's relatively easy for me to stay in that mindset. When I waffle, I'm often pulled into that expert mode. And, and it's really challenging sometimes when you know, quote unquote, the right answer, or you know a way to do it better than what the teacher is doing. And you still need to slow yourself down and help that teacher come to that approach. And I really have seen how that has been much more successful for for the teachers when I give them that opportunity. So I do coaching with groups of principals virtually, and I've been doing that for many years. I call it a mastermind, and it's really a great way to help them. And what I love about it is that we get together, we bring up a problem, we have a whole bunch of people come together and and give ideas, and then that person gets to walk away and make their own decision. Nobody else is responsible. Nobody else claims responsibility for them doing that. But in my professional life as a principal and working with coaches, we have often felt the need to direct and tell people how they should do their work when really we need to leave it up to them. John Cat Educational supports high quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical, and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John Cat publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, 
One book that says stop talking and start doing with regard to teacher well-being and much more. These books used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose professional learning platform doubles student engagement online or in person. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash transformative principle. I created a new podcast with my friend Frederick Lane called Cybertraps. We are exploring the myriad risks and adverse consequences that can arise from the use and misuse of digital devices and electronic communication tools. Please subscribe to the Cybertraps podcast, and if you like it, please give us a rating. Here's an excerpt from an interview with Eric Stevens on the value of identity and being ethical in our work with underserved populations. If I approach my research with the intention of helping a group of people, but I'm using the data that they themselves have created and have been replicated by their their own personal identity, replicated over and over and over and over, my research is already flawed ethically. Some people, that's not a big thing. For me, it was problematic because I didn't want to feel like I was exploiting people, but I still wanted to help. What I ended up creating was I wanted to understand the prison system at the language level across time um, and across space in the United States. Um, basically, I wanted to understand if we send a person to prison, we're sending them to a correctional facility um, with correctional officers, and we give them handbooks to say, hey, this is what you should be doing. What I wanted to answer was at the language level with the technical documents that we hand to um, an inmate, what are we correcting them to? To what standard are we asking them to be at the language level? Check out more from this interview at cybertraps.com slash seven. So my real question comes down to after we see how successful this is with adults, why don't we teach more in this fashion as teachers? What's preventing us from stepping away from being the expert and helping coach kids to be more successful? Well, I hate to be redundant, but I would say it's our identity as a teacher. Our belief that a teacher is someone who has the answer, whose responsibility it is to give students information, who has that as, as a, both a love and a drive driver in our practice, then it's very hard for us to step back. Yet I think we have learned over the last perhaps decade that more engagement in problem-based learning more productive struggle, more opportunities for students to have those um, dialogic experiences through Socratic seminar, for example, or other processes. We're discovering that we can accomplish so much more with our students 
that goes way beyond just the academic component. It's about building analytic human beings who can function in a world that requires them to discriminate, to differentiate, to be critical and creative thinkers. And so we have those opportunities and we, we are seeing more and more of it and it's exciting to see. It, it really is exciting to see and it definitely does make a difference because those who those who take this approach that we're talking about in their own learning, I have seen through the students where I've done this, that they have learned way more than a teacher could have possibly expected of them. Just a brief story to illustrate that. Because we moved from Alaska to Washington this summer, don't know anybody here, we decided to homeschool three of our children because they're doing all online. And so we've taken a very different approach and much more of a student-driven approach because that's what I've been preaching about in schools for so many years. And so we've allowed the kids to you know, set their own things that they want to learn and be interested in. And it's been really neat. And my daughter, who just turned nine, she said that she wanted to learn multiplication. And so I said, okay, what do you need from me to help you do that? And she said, well, I don't know what it is. And I said, okay, it's repeated addition. So what does that tell you? And she says, I guess it means that I just keep adding again and again. I said, that's right. And so that's pretty much what you do. So what else do you want? And she said, well, I want to know what uh, two times two is. And I said, okay, well, that one's pretty easy. And I printed her out one of those 12 by 12 multiplication charts, right? And I said, here you go. And she looked at that for a minute and then tossed it aside because she wasn't interested. She came back to me later and showed me in her little notebook how she had written multiplication of 15. And she started with 10 times 15 and then went all the way up to 20 times 15 and worked that all out herself and figured out what that was. And if I would have, like in a regular classroom, she would have stopped at 12 times 12 to be sure. And instead Absolutely. she completely surpassed it and started multiplying 15 times 10 through 20, which was just incredible. And she was so proud of herself <laughs> and, you know, had it been a regular school, we would have just stopped at a certain point, but because we let her do her thing and solve her own problem, she took what I gave her said, this isn't interesting enough and moved on to something else. It was amazing. Joellen. It's a fabulous example, and I can imagine as a parent how that made you feel, that she was able to arrive at those brilliant discoveries, being driven by a passion that she had. How exciting. Yeah, and then for the next week, she didn't want anything to do with math. <laughs> and that's all right. You know, that's we're trying okay. to figure this out ourselves. And and so what she did instead is she wrote a book and actually gave it to me for my birthday yesterday, which was um, very, very cool. And when they do things that we aren't expecting, it's completely amazing. But it's not impossible for them to reach that level. So that was a great little diversion talking about students. Let's go back to talking. Well, let me just slide yeah, in please. a little happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. So the the other thing that I want to talk to you about is the dialectic approach to feedback. Can you yes. talk about how that incorporates in one to what we've already been talking about, but what does that look like now as well? So it, it really is a, a capstone of what we've been talking about, just as the notion that when we give people information, that often that information is discounted, 
it's questioned, it may or may not be valued or desired, may not be appropriate. We might not be ready for it. And what you've just described with your daughter, that discovery process being so enlightening and so fulfilling, that same principle applies to feedback. When we think about feedback, the person giving the feedback is doing all the work. The the person I call the learner in that process, who is partnering with the learning partner, we would normally have called those the feedback giver and the feedback receiver. Yet in my new approach to feedback, I do not allow people to use the verbs give and receive in association with feedback for the exact principles we were just talking about. If I give you feedback, I'm doing the work, I'm doing all the cognitive processing, I'm holding myself superior to you in the sense that I'm the knowledgeable other, the one who knows and you don't. So I've immediately created a hierarchy. I I am conveying to you that you are less than able. I am um, denying you of the opportunity to engage in that construction of your own learning. So in the other approach to feedback that I advocate, again, it's a coaching process. It starts with, what do you know? What did you discover? What did the data tell you? What are you aware of? What do you see as patterns? Where does this bring you in terms of where you want to be? It's a process that I've laid out in the feedback process book that literally is a guided process of discovering by using experiences and data as a source of our reflection and analysis. And it ends with our learner constructing knowledge about his or her experience, about himself or herself, about the context in which this work happens, and setting an intention to continue to test the hypothesis in future situations. So there's no giving of information. It's guiding a thought process that allows the person to really engage in construction of knowledge and then taking that knowledge that we've constructed and deconstructing it for different contexts, different situations, different kinds of experiences. So it's the exact principle that your daughter applied. And when we think about it, like that makes sense, right? And we can understand how that would make sense, but we often shy away from it because we don't get to the end result, which is the quote unquote right answer as quickly. And so, so we avoid that. And so 
we we want to say like the best way to engage kids is X, Y, or Z, when really it depends on what that person's ability is to engage kids and what their own thought of what engagement looks like for them to say, this is what works for me. And in my first couple of years teaching, that's really what I focused on is what what is the right thing to do? And I was miserable, Joellen. I just hated working. I hated going to school. I hated like trying to do what somebody else was doing. And once I finally was able to let that go and do what worked for me. So for example, I don't mind chatter in my classroom. That to me is totally acceptable and I can handle that. And when I need kids to be quiet, I have a way that I can get them quiet. That's respectful and appropriate. But I allow a lot of chatter in my class. And every time a principal came in to observe me, they would always say, there's too much talking in your class. And I would say, well, that's what we do in my classes. We talk. This is English. I taught English to middle school and high schoolers. And we need to talk and converse. And that needs to happen. So talking isn't inherently bad. But in the structure that I was being supervised in, it was bad. And it was seen as a negative. And so as a principal later, I could never go into a teacher's classroom and say, there's too much talking because I think that's so essential to the learning. But I need to figure that out for myself and figure out what worked for me. And it sounds like with this approach that that's what you're trying to do. And and so that raises a number of challenges in that you can't, if you have a right answer for your school or the cultural norms or how you're supposed to do things, how do you manage that right answer with helping someone get to it on their own? The, the feedback process starts with two steps. The, the first step is to get clear on what the learner, adult or student, is intending to learn. What is it that you as a principal are striving to refine in your practice or stretch or grow or add or subtract from your practice or as a student What is it about your writing that you want to improve or a teacher? What is it about student engagement? And then the second part is the part that relates to your question. And it is to establish jointly a clear set of success criteria. What does success look like? I suspect in your situation, no one bothered to ask you the value of chatter in your classroom. I suspect no one bothered to listen to your rationale for having students engaged in discussion. I suspect somebody didn't even bother to think about the fact that there are speaking and listening standards in the ELA curriculum, which your students were probably practicing every day. So, It's about defining the criteria for success and allowing the learner to be the leader in that work. And yes, it's true. For example, a a situation I was in not too long ago, a teacher was grappling with engagement remotely. And the only way she was defining it was that students had their cameras on and they were looking attentively and there was no, you know, looking 
uh, other devices. And it, she had a very narrow view of what she meant by engagement. And so I engaged with her on thinking about how she demonstrates engagement to help expand her understanding. She then was allowed to define her own success criteria. So that's a part of it as well. If I know what it is I'm looking for, and I don't engage you in understanding what that looks like, what it sounds like, why it's there, and help you contribute to what you'd like your success in that area to be. There's no amount of learning that's going to happen and no amount of feedback is going to change your practice. You have to own it. Yeah, and and the worst result of that, I think, is that you do things because you're being told to when you're being observed and then you completely change. Um, so funny story about that. We adopted a new evaluation model. And one of the evaluation pieces was that you would post your objective on the board. So our smart aleck teachers, because the way that it was presented was basically put your standards up on the wall. They printed out their standards but, on and poster paper and pasted it up on the wall and said, there are my standards. And what was interesting is that as I came in as a new principal in that situation, I started asking them, what? what is it that a student will learn as a result of being in your class today? That's the objective. And once I clarified what that, what that really meant, then people started changing their behavior and saying, okay, I can narrow this down and write an actual objective on the board. And the best part was, which totally ties into this conversation, one teacher that I was working with, she said, you know, we're doing an inquiry lesson. And if I tell them what I want them to learn, then they're never going, then that's going to ruin the whole lesson. And the whole point is for them to come to that on their own. And I believe they can come to it. And I believe every single kid can come to it because of how I'm setting this up. But if I tell them at the outset what they're going to learn, then I can't do it and it won't work. And I said, well, you probably shouldn't put your objective on the board then. And she said, well, the evaluation says that we have to. And what if you come to observe me? And I said, it doesn't matter. What's important is that you know what your ki- what you want your kids to learn. And you have a specific way of getting them to that point. And this is even better because you're not saying from the outset, here's what you have to learn. And here's how you do it. You're actually saying, I want you to go through this process and come to the knowledge on your own, which is way more powerful. And once she did that, she was like, man, this was the best lesson I've ever taught. And I said, well, you should probably do it again (laughs) and keep doing that. And she moved beyond the need to have that check mark of that, that standard checked off. And she needed to move into something else. And just a great example of what we've been talking about here. She was probably using essential questions to guide her students' discovery of learning and helping them know what the questions were they were going to be able to answer, I suspect, at the end of that class. So it's always helpful to engage in that way. Where are we headed? And having students have a voice in that process, putting those objectives in student language and engaging students in understanding 
what they're going to learn. It's so helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So in closing, what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal, Joellen? Oh, I would say there are two things I'm going, if I can be allowed to offer two. One, I'm going to ask all principals to take a moment during the week to identify three things they're particularly proud of in relationship to their leadership practice during the week. And they can be the tiniest things to big things. I think we need to pull to the forefront those moments, those small or large moments of success way more often. And then I would also ask them to make sure that they are taking enough time to be with their family, with their friends in whatever way that might be, to have those opportunities for non-work-related relationships to be renewing to them. It's so easy in times like these to give 18, 20 hours a day to our work. And I think it is absolutely critical to make sure that we are balancing our work life scales a bit more, particularly in times of stress. And so those would be the two things. I think if principles can be better balanced, and it it's hard because it's hard to say no to the work that's in front of us. But I promise every principal, the more you balance those scales, the better you will be in both the world of work and the world of life in general. Yeah, that is really fantastic advice. I appreciate that. If you'd like to learn more from Joellen, you can follow her on Twitter at JP Killian. And if you'd like to learn more about the work she does, you can go to learningforward.org. And Joellen, I want to thank you for being part of Transformative Principle today. Thank you so much. Thank you to our valued partner, John Cat Educational. If you are a leader looking to make transformative change by providing yourself and your leaders and teachers with professional development that is research-based and rigorous, yet easy to digest and full of practical strategies, check out the latest publications from John Cat. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com to find information on bulk orders or learn much more in our show notes. You can also use the code TRANSFORMATIVE to save a bundle at us.johncatbookshop.com. School principals across the country are using TeachFX's virtual PD and job-embedded feedback to boost student engagement during COVID. With TeachFX, teachers get eight times more feedback and generate 144% more student engagement on average in a school year with no additional work for school leaders or teachers. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash principal.